All right, today we'll read Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to read verses 1 to 19. 1 to 19, however, our message today is just verse 1. But I'd like us to read verse 1 in its context. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, love of the brethren. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of the lips that gives thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls, as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Let's pray. Our Lord, our Lord in heaven, we thank you so much for giving us this word of God. We thank you, Lord, that our salvation is dependent on the knowledge of this word of God. And Lord, not only our salvation, but the proof of our salvation, the evidence of it, is granted here, shown here, demonstrated and explained. We pray, Father, that you will assure us, that, and you will not only assure us of this salvation we have, but also teach us to walk according to the image of Christ, that just as he loved his brothers, that we should love our brothers. Teach us, Father, to love the brethren, what it means, what it does not mean, and give us the strength to carry it out. For we ask in the name of our Lord. Amen. Well, in chapter 13, as we've been saying before, Chapter 13 is the only chapter in this letter that addresses practical matters, addresses ethical matters, how we should behave and conduct our Christian life toward one another. In the first 12 chapters, he has been primarily, not exclusively, but primarily he has been theological. He has taught us about God, Christ, our salvation, and how we need to cling to those truths. Now in chapter 13, He's telling us how we should live, how we should conduct our Christian life, how we should prove, in other words, that we love God. He's teaching us to love God, all that God has done for us in chapters 1 to 12. Now he's teaching us to love one another. Now to love one another. Then in this chapter, 
as we read in verses 1 to 19, he has various exhortations, various commands, various ways in which we ought to love one another or to treat one another in proof of our love for God. I believe that verse 1 of chapter 13 is a summary statement or the thesis of the rest of this chapter. Verse 1 is exhorting us, commanding us, let love of the brethren continue. And then he illustrates by means of a few examples of what he means in their particular situation, which is also common to our situation, how we should be treating one another. As he says in verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. As he says in verse 3, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. Verse 4, let marriage be held in an honor among all. Verses 5 and 6, let your character be free from the love of money. Verse 7, remember those who led you and the doctrine and the life that they lived. And in verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. Verse 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience. So prayer for one another, in other words, in verse 18. These are various examples of practical, applicable ways in which we show our love for one another and that we show our love for God thereby. This is what I think he is doing here in this chapter. So for today, in this message, we will focus our attention just on verse 1 to establish the thesis, to establish the premise or the basis for our Christian life. He says here, let love of the brethren continue. Now, when you hear that, when you first hear that, you say, well, why do I need to hear that? I already know that. I know, I know that. My parents taught me that I need to love my brothers. I need to love one another. We need to love each other. My parents taught me that. So I already know as a basic principle of life that love should dominate my life. I already know that. And then in the family of God, I don't need anybody to tell me, we might think. I already know that I need to love one another. However, in the scriptures, in various places, we have reminders and have we considered that it's good to be reminded? And that's what he's doing right here. We have reminders. We need reminders that we ought to love one another. Our first example is not just here in chapter 13, verse 1, the need for a reminder. But notice in chapter 12, the chapter 12, verse 5. Verse 5, 12, 5, he says, You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. There, he says, you have forgotten the exhortation. So he tells them, you needed to be reminded. You forgot the exhortation, so I'm reminding you of the exhortation. Further, turn with me to Second Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. 1, 12 of 2 Peter. Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. And I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. Here he gives us a full explanation, an unapologetic explanation of why he's reminding them. He says, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things. He's speaking of his own diligence, as he says in 15, I will also be diligent. His own diligence to always be ready to remind those who need to be reminded of these things. What things? The things related to our salvation and Christian life. That's what he just explained in the first chapter, leading up to verse 12. And he says, even though you already know them. He's not saying you've never heard this before. He's not implying that. He's implying that even though we have heard it before, we need to hear it again and again and again 
And again, he knows that what they heard at the first, they believe, they know it, they are established in the truth, which is present with you, he says in verse 12. He's not uh, saying anything about that, but he says, verse 13, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. He's saying as long as he's alive, he needs to remind them of the truths of God. As long as he is alive, as long as he has breath to be able to speak this word and to help the church of God, he will do it. He knows it's the right thing to do to remind people about the truths of God. That means that the hearers should have this kind of humility or teachability to hear what they need to hear again and again and again and again. He says in 14, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you may be able to call these things to mind. Now, the unseen world is an unseen world. If you have witnessed something with your physical eyes, it's easier to remember that than if you just hear it with your ears. Correct? That's why people say seeing is believing. Now, that's not true in every circumstance, but in many situations, if you actually see it, if you actually read the words on the page and you don't hear somebody say it, or you actually are an eyewitness of some incident, it's easier for you to remember and to recall it than if someone just said the words. So Peter knows this, God knows this, and he's t teaching us that while he's alive, he's going to say words, audible words that you cannot see, that you cannot touch, you cannot grab. He's going to tell them words, audible words, that they need to know, and even written words, that they need to know and read again and again and again, so that it might be ingrained in them, so that when he dies, and he's not there anymore, he doesn't know what's going to happen after that, correct? Even Moses said in the whole book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy was Moses' farewell sermon or a series of sermons to the people right before Moses died. And what does Moses do again and again and again? He exhorts them like this. He says, do not forget, do not forget, remember, do not forget, remember. He says it again and again. And then he says that he knows the people have been rebellious while he's alive and he says, you have been rebellious since the day I knew you. How much more will you be rebellious against God after I die? He doesn't want them to be that way, but he warns them, it might happen to you. And that's what Peter is saying here too, that after his departure from this world, he wants the people to be able to remember these things that he's been telling them again and again and again and again. This is necessary. This is what our apostle is doing in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Even though people already know this, he's telling them again because they need to be reminded. We all need to be reminded of this truth. Further, when we see this statement here in chapter 13, verse 1, 13, 1, we have to understand it in relation to God himself. God himself. When he says, let love of the brethren continue, he's not teaching works salvation. He's not saying, if you love your brothers, that's your ticket to heaven. He's not teaching that. We know in the context of this letter, he's not teaching it because for 12 chapters, he's been saying, your whole salvation depends on the work of Christ. Your whole salvation depends on the grace of Christ. It depends on what Christ has done on your behalf. That is the basis of your salvation. Your faith should be in that. He has taught that throughout this letter. So no one should misunderstand him as though he's teaching that we're going to be saved by just loving one another. If we're just kind to each other, we'll get to heaven. No. If we just help our neighbor out, if we mow his lawn once in a while, we go, we go to take his trash out once in a while, we go do something like that once in a while for our neighbor, if we do these kinds of good deeds, if we just love our brothers that way, then everything will be fine and dandy. Then we'll get to heaven. So it doesn't depend on Christ, it depends on our good works 
of helping people in the neighborhood. No, he's not teaching salvation by works. This is very plain and clear throughout this letter. He's teaching salvation in Christ. But if we do love Christ, we will obey Christ. And he taught us to obey him in this way. Furthermore, when he says that love of the brethren continue, he is teaching us that our love of God is directly related to a manifestation of that love in loving one another. We will love God by loving one another. If we do not love one another, we do not love God. How do we know that? Turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. How can we know that we truly love God? Well, it's in relation to loving our brothers. 1 John 4, 19. 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar, for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. In verse 9, he tells us so that we're not mistaking anything. We love because he first loved us. God first loved us. This is why we love him, we love God, and we love one another. We don't love God truly, and we do not love one another truly, unless God first loved us. How did God first love us? He loved us before the foundation of the world by choosing us in Christ. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons, from Ephesians chapter 1. He loved us in that way, and then in the world, he sent his one and only son to die for our sins. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, or his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved us by sending his son into the world. We know that is the case. We also know that he loved us because love is embedded in God or is according to the nature of God. Notice 1 John 4, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. 1 John 4, 8. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love means this attribute in its perfection, in its origination, it's in, in its eternal condition, from eternity to all eternity, it resides in God. There are many other attributes, but this one attribute is his focus here, that God is love. This is why we love, because he first loved us. It originates in God, in his nature, in his actions, in his work in the world, and it comes to us. So, if that now belongs to us, he says, we love because he first loved us. It's according to the nature of God, and it's according to the works of God in the world for our benefit. Therefore, if that is a part of us now, if we now have a taste of it, if we now have a deposit of that love of God within us, we're able to love him. So, if that's true, verse 20, he says, if someone says, and he quotes someone hypothetically, if someone says, I love God, quote unquote, I love God. If someone says it, the fact that he says it doesn't make it true. No. The fact that somebody says anything doesn't necessarily make it true. It depends on the factuality of the matter. It depends on the evidence of the matter. It depends on how it's manifested after this thing is said, correct? Just because somebody says it doesn't make it true. If somebody says that the moon is made of cheese, does it make it true? No, it depends on the factuality of it. It depends on the evidence of it. It depend, depends on what proceeds from that point onwards. In the same way here, he says, if someone says, I love God, quote unquote, I love God, and hates his brother, and hates his brother, 
he is a liar. So, saying the words is not enough. The proof is in the pudding. It's not what you say, it's what you do, right? This is what, these are common English proverbs that teach us, that's what he's saying right here in 1 John 4, 20. He's saying, if someone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. It's not true. In fact, he is a liar. He's not a lover of God or a lover of his brother. He is a liar. Now you might ask, well, in what way is he hating? Well, one example we might see is in 1 John chapter 3. There are many ways in which we might hate our brother. But here, notice, in 1 John 3, 3, 16, he, he shows us one example of what it means to hate. We know love by this. Now here's an example he's saying. That he, Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. In verse 18, addressing us, he says, let us not love in, with word or with tongue. Well, word and tongue is right there in 1 John 4, 20. I love God. That's the word and tongue part. We shouldn't love that way, but in deed and truth. How we behave and the truth of the matter, the factuality of the matter, the evidence of the matter, that's how we should behave. And in this example, he's saying, if I have some material possession, whatever it is, he says, the world's goods, if I have something that will benefit my brother in Christ, if it will benefit my brother in Christ because he needs it, right? It's not a want, it's not a pleasure, it's not a luxury, it's a need. Beholds his brother in need. A needy brother, right? If we have a needy brother and we close our heart against him, he says, how does the love of God abide in him? There's no love of God in him. If there's no love, then what does it mean? Verse, 1 John 4, 20, if you don't love your brother, you hate him. Whether you admit it or not, if you don't love your brother, you hate him, whether you admit it or not, and you are a liar. Then he says, back to 1 John 4, 20, for, and this is a because, a reason, for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If you don't love in the biblical way the brother that you see, the brother that's right there standing next to you, sitting next to you, walking next to you, wherever he is, the one that is there, if you cannot and do not love him in the way that the Bible teaches us to love him, we cannot love the invisible God. Cannot love God whom he has not seen. You cannot love the invisible God unless you love the visible brother that you see right there before your very eyes. Now, this is also contrary to common Christian cliches. One of the uh, cliches in Christianity is, it's easy for me to love God, but it's hard for me to love my brother. It's hard for me to love Christians. I can love God, but I can't love my Christian. I can't love Christians. I can't love the people in the church. The people in the church, it's hard to love them, but I love God. Don't people say things like that? They say it all the time. They say it all the time, and then they avoid Christians. They avoid seeking for true Christians, believers, so that they might love God, worship God, study the Bible together, encourage each other, and pray for each other together. They avoid that. So they're not loving their brother whom they see, therefore they cannot love the invisible God that they cannot see. And 21, 1 John 4, 21, and this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. There's a commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. If we love God, we should love our brother. If we don't love God, we will not love our brother. There is a direct connection. And notice it says, 
a commandment from him. Well, let's see one place where this commandment was issued. John chapter 13. John chapter 13. This commandment was issued here. John 13. John 13. 34. 1334. Christ our Lord speaks and he says, 1334, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. He teaches here a new commandment I give to you. It's a new commandment. Now you might say, how could this be a new commandment since it was first announced explicitly in Leviticus 19.18, 1,500 years before the first coming of Christ? Because in Leviticus 19.18, it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It was issued as a commandment back in Leviticus 19.18. So how could Jesus call it a new commandment? I believe it's new in this way, as I have loved you. It's new in the sense that Jesus demonstrated this love and he made possible this love for us in that he redeemed us. He demonstrated it as I loved you and then he made it possible by dying on the cross for our sins. Remember 1 John 3.16 said that he'd lay down his life for us so we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So he demonstrated it and he made it possible by giving us a new heart. Therefore, we have this new commandment that we love to obey. We want to obey. We did not in the past want to obey the commandment to love one another. But now that we know Christ, he has paid the penalty and we believe in him dying on the cross for us, manifesting his love toward us. Now we want to obey this new commandment. In this sense, I think it is new. So he says, you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The way that Christians behave toward one another should manifest that we are disciples of Christ, he says, toward one another. Further, as we study this verse, Hebrews 13, 1, when he says, let love of the brethren continue, we have to ask ourselves, what is love? What is love? If he says love of the brethren should continue, we have to ask, what is love? Now, turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, where he will give us a long exposition of it. And we'll highlight certain points of this exposition of what love is in 1 John chapter 3. Love, essentially, is not the toleration of sin. Love in the Bible is not the toleration of sin, according to 1 John chapter 3, and according to many other verses. This is necessary to assert at the outset about what love is or is not, because today, many people think that if one person loves another, or one Christian truly loves another, he will never confront the other person's sin. He'll never say something about the other person's sin. He'll never comment on it, never confront it, never do anything about it, but he'll avoid it and let that sin continue. That's what I mean by the Bible does not teach that love is the toleration of sin. It teaches the opposite. It's not the toleration of sin in our own life, but also in the lives of other people. We do what's necessary in our own life and we do what's necessary in the life of other people in order to put up barriers and roadblocks to sin. How can we know that? 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. In verse 1, he taught us that this love that we should have 
originates from the Father. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. We are indeed that way. We are the children of God because He bestowed, He granted to us His love in Christ. And because of this, there is a separation that now occurs. The world that is not the children of God, but the world or the children of the devil, the world doesn't know us and they don't know us because they don't know God. Now he says that when we have this love of God, when we are now the children of God, this love of God causes a division, a separation. It causes distance between us and the people of the world. We have a different mindset. We have a different heart. We have different values. We have a different goal. Our goal is not self-seeking, pleasure, uh, accumulation of wealth, and this or that that we might do right now. Our goal has to do with godly things, eternal things. And he says in verses 2 to 3 that our hope, our hope is the return of Christ. And when Christ returns... Because we have the love of God in us, we put our hope in Christ. And meantime, he says, verse 3, he who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So what does this love of God poured out within us cause us to have? Hope in Christ and the desire to be just like Christ, to conform ourselves to the image of Christ to be pure just as he is pure. And this is a process. This is a progression. This it happens continually. That's why he says in Hebrews 13:1, let love of the brethren continue. Because it's not perfect. It will never be perfect in any of us, but it must continue. It must remain and we must continue to purify and purify and purify ourselves so that we are doing it in a better and better way. And verses 4 and following Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And he appeared to take away sins, verse 5. He came in order to take away sins. Therefore, we're not practicing sin anymore. If we have the love of God within us, we're not practicing sin anymore. We don't love it. We understand the guilt of sin. We seek to alleviate ourselves from the guilt of sin, so we confess our sins. We take steps to avoid committing that same sin again and again and again. We do what's necessary and we seek for the power of God, we, for the Holy Spirit to fill us. So we don't practice sin if we love God. We don't tolerate sin in our life if we don't do this. And he says in 7, little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. Don't let people deceive you. And, and disarm you. This is what they do. They disarm you if you think about sin or talk about sin or talk about the rejection of sin. They'll say, then you're not, you're not loving. You're not being kind to me. You're not being merciful to me. You don't love me. You're judging me. So on and so forth. No, that's not the way it is. He says, let no one deceive you. Let no one deceive you. Let no one disarm you and make you feel bad that you have confronted so-and-so about his sin, or you have identified your own sin. Sometimes this happens too. If we used to be a gambler, and now that we are Christians, we say we give, well, I've given up gambling, and we just announce it to our friends. We're not confronting our friend. We just announce it to our friends. I don't gamble anymore. That itself will make them feel guilty even if you're not confronting them. Just that you announce that God has changed you and you have new values, a new perspective, that itself will make them feel guilty and they'll say, I don't want to be your friend anymore. That has happened. It happens many times to, to true believers that when they announce it, but then what do the people do? They say, why do you say that to me? That, that's your life. You, don't imply that I'm supposed to give it up. Then they say, you're unloving when you say that. Don't be that way. It's good for you, but it's not good for me. To each his own. Live and let live. They say things like that to silence you, to disarm you. No, it's deception. Let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, 
just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. So, here he's teaching us that sin should not be tolerated in us and in others. We need to avoid sin if we are loving God and loving our brother as ourself. Remember, the commandment is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We love ourselves, so we give up sin. We love our brothers, so we help them to give up sin. Furthermore, we have to understand when it says, let love of the brethren continue. Now, this word brethren, your Bible may say brothers, and the word brethren is an old English word that means brothers. It's a collective singular noun, brethren, means brothers. It's singular in that there's no S ending. So it's a collective singular noun, brethren, and it means brothers. First, the clarification, because feminism is so common today, he does not imply that there should be no love of sisters in Christ. He's just using one word, a simple word, in order to get his point across. And sometimes we even do that in a mixed group. Even women do this in a mixed group. Women even do it in an exclusively female group. What do sometimes women do in a mixed group? They'll call the whole group guys. Okay, guys, it's time to eat. Okay, guys, it's time to go. But there's guys and gals in the group, right? And sometimes one woman will say to a group of other women, okay, guys, it's time to go. They don't stop and say, okay, gals, it's time to go. They say guys. Because there are certain convenient ways of expression, idioms in one language or another, and that's true in the Bible. When it says, let love of the brethren continue, there is no implication that God hates women, God doesn't care for sisters in Christ, or anything like that. There's no implication. It's just an idiom, a figure of speech, and a simple way to get the point across. And we often have short phrases ourselves in English to convey something we want to say. And that's all that's happening here. Further, when it says, let love of the brethren continue, we might ask, are we to love our brothers in Christ only? Or should we love the brothers of our city, the brothers of our neighborhood, the brothers of our nation? Should we love them too? Because the word brother can be used as literal brother in the family, in the natural family, the word brother can be used to speak of someone who is a part of your state, someone who's a part of your country, like that, your, the, the brothers in your country. And many times when people are talking uh, in terms of a patriotic context, they will call one another brothers. It could also be brother in terms of ideology, ideological brothers. One ideology, people talking to each other within that ideology or religion will call one another brothers. And so, brothers, the word brothers is used like that. In this case, he's saying the term brothers or brethren in terms of brethren in Christ. Brethren in Christ. He clearly means that. However, we should ask the question, what is our love of the brethren or brothers in Christ? How does that look? And how should our love of others in the world look? Because the Bible also teaches us that we should love others in the world. There is a distinction. So how shall we understand that distinction? Let's see. Let's see a couple of examples. The first one is Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6 verse 10. 6.10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. He says, while we have opportunity, while it's in your power, if the incident is happening before your eyes, you hear of it, you know of it, you have an opportunity to help. Let us do good to all men. So do good to all men, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. 
good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So our consideration, our consideration, our energies, our resources should especially be focused on the believers. That's Hebrews 13.1, the household of the faith. First and foremost, if there's someone in our local body, in our local church, who needs help, whatever that help is, let us do good to him. Let us do good there, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. However, this does not mean that if there is someone else there out in the world, you meet a stranger, you see a stranger who is helpless, who is needy. You see someone who is stranded on the roadside, someone who needs help at the grocery store, picking up something, putting it in the cart, or taking it out of the cart and putting it into the cart, whatever it might be. Somebody who has an emergency, somebody's bleeding, somebody has a stroke or heart attack right there before your eyes while you're there at the store, in your workplace. What should you do? You do what's necessary to help him. Let us do good to all men. Don't avoid it, don't ignore it, don't run away from it, but help him. So let us do good to all men. We should help in those ways, circumstantial ways. And I think the clearest circumstantial way to help those people in the world is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember what happened there? There were those who knew better, the priest and the Levite, they saw a man who was robbed and beaten and left stranded on the roadside. They walked by him and didn't help him. But there was a Samaritan who walked by, a foreigner. So Samaritans and Jews are different races or ethnicities. The Samaritan saw this man. He didn't know this man. None of the men who walked by him knew that man, stranded and beaten by the roadside, robbed. He, nobody knew him. But the Samaritan helped that man who was desperate. He helped him. He took him to an inn. He, he paid for whatever cost to, to, to um, have him recover, living there in the inn and whatever medical expenses. He, he paid for that, and he made sure that the man was whole and healthy before sending him on his way. So that was a circumstantial one. It was an emergency. It was an urgency. He saw that, and he helped him. And that's what we should do. We should love people generally or all men generally in ways like that. But especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Especially our mind should be on seeing each other and seeing how we can help each other. If someone expresses a need, a prayer request, someone expresses a prayer request, well, what's behind that prayer request? Behind that prayer request might be some anxiety. Behind that prayer request might be a financial need. Behind that prayer request might be some physical need. Behind that um, comment might be all kinds of things, right? So, to the extent that God makes you aware of it, lays it on your heart, you need to pursue it and see how you can help that person in the body of Christ to pray or to help in whatever manner is necessary. So, there is a distinction that it should be primarily for the local body but also generally in various ways to help one another. Let love of the brethren continue, he says. Now, one more aspect of what it means to love God. There will be a time, this is inevitable with all of us, it is inevitable with all of us that there will be a time when we will need to choose between loving God by loving our brothers or loving our family by loving our family, our natural family. There are times when our natural family will teach us or expect us to do something contrary to the love of God and the love of the brothers in Christ. There will be times when that dilemma presents itself before us. A time when our natural biological family will expect something of us, command something of us, and that will be contrary to love of God and love of neighbor as ourselves, or love of the Christian brother. So what should we do? What should we do? Matthew teaches us. Matthew and even Luke, they both teach us. Matthew chapter 10. What should we do when we are presented with that dilemma. 
Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10 and verse 34. Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. In 34, Jesus makes a curious statement. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. That's been very curious, curious to many people. Many people wonder, I thought it said in Luke chapter 2, peace on earth and goodwill among men with whom he is pleased, that Christ came to bring peace on the earth and, and peace and reconciliation between us and God. Yes, he did. He came to do all that. So Luke 2, 14 is correct. And, the, and uh, Romans 5, 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's all correct. And Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, that he has reconciled us, Jew and Gentile, into one body in Christ. We were hostile and, and at enmity toward one another, but now we are one in Christ. All of that is true. So what does Jesus mean here? Well, in context, he's meaning... Do not think that I came to bring peace in that every relationship you have, personal relationship or familial relationship, natural biological relationship, is going to be fine and happy, fine and dandy now that I've come. That's not going to happen. That's the sense in which he says, I did not come to bring peace. He did not come to bring peace but a sword. And when he says a sword, he doesn't mean a literal sword because Jesus didn't go about with the literal sword. And his disciples only at one point, they had two swords. And he says, that's enough. It is enough. But he did not carry a sword. So he didn't go around with the sword on his hip waiting to chop people and, and drive the sword into, somebody's, into somebody. He didn't come to do that. He's not talking about a literal sword. What sword is he talking about? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians chapter 6, 6, 17. So, if that's the sword that is announced, when we are announcing the Word of God, the truths of God to our loved ones, those who are flesh and blood, they're not going to always receive it well. So, if they're not going to receive it well, then what should happen? What should we expect? Well, what should we expect, he says, a man will be against his father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his household. He just illustrates with a few examples. He's not talking about every literal um, relationship in the natural family, but he just illustrates here that this kind of dissonance, this kind of conflict will happen. So when it happens, who should you love most? God? And the people of God, because they are interrelated, as we've just seen, or your natural family. Verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. So, if we love our natural family more than God and how that manifests itself in our spiritual family, then we are not worthy of Christ. Not worthy of Christ. And we are not taking up our cross and following Christ. And if we seek to find our life now, possess and hold on to whatever life we have right now, our physical life and our relationships with others in our natural family, he says, he who has found his life shall lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Eternal life does await those who want 
to supremely, solely please Christ. And when we please Christ, inevitably it is for our good and even for the good of our natural family. Even for the good of our natural family, though they might not admit it, they might not acknowledge it, they may never acknowledge it or admit it, it is for their good that we obey Christ. And it is a matter of love and hate. If we don't love Christ the way he teaches us to love Christ, then we hate Christ and we hate our brother. How shall we, how do we know this? Luke 14, 26. Luke 14, 26. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not arbitrary and Jesus is not biased. He is completely objective because he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, and even his own life, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So what, what does he mean here? He's not saying that we should literally in some malicious and evil way or physical and violent way, hate father, mother, wife, and so forth. He's not saying that. Of course he's not saying that because he says his own, even you have to hate your own life. So what does he mean? He means that when you are presented with this dilemma of pleasing God, loving God, and loving the brothers in Christ, if when you are presented with this dilemma, who are you going to love? Are you going to love your natural family and even your own self, meaning your sinful self, or are you going to love Christ? Are you going to love Christ or love yourself and those who are in your family? He says, if we have this practice, if we have this bent, this proclivity to love others above Christ, and above, and to not hate our own life, we cannot be his disciple. Yes, we are all tempted. We're all tempted, constantly tempted, but we have to be aware of this temptation and seek to overcome it. To love Christ, love our brothers in Christ above everyone else and anything else. This is what I think he means by let love of the brethren continue. It must continue. It must continue in all of us until we see him. He who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Continue until we see him face to face. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.